From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests Anne James of the University Hospitals NHS Trust. I can't not think about the hospital 24-7. It gets into your blood a bit, it gets into your soul and you feel really hugely committed to it. So the truth is, I don't really switch off. And Trevor Worth from Portcullis Legals. When we got announced as a winner, I felt one of our apprentices was with us. She should go up and get the award and we followed her up. And that, for me, was a great thing because it shows we're on the right path. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to another podcast edition of In Conversation With. And today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Anne James, who's the Chief Executive of University Hospitals Plymouth NHS Trust. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Hi, Anne. It is. Hi. I've got to ask you, what does the UHP bit mean? University Hospitals Plymouth. And you can only get called University Hospital if you do teach clinical students, both medical, nursing and other professions. So there's a whole rigmarole you've got to go through before you're allowed to say that you're a university hospital. And quite rightly so, it's a really important status and badge, really, of the training facilities that you've got. But most people, fondly and affectionately, just call us Derriford Hospital. I was going to say, you're Derriford, aren't we you? Are. That's it. And everything in Plymouth is shortened, isn't it? It's just Derriford. It's, everyone knows what you mean. If you say I'm going up Derriford, everyone, everyone knows, knows. What, what you mean. Yeah. And <laughs> I've been doing some research. I've not been able to find a single scandalous thing about you, which is terrible, Anne. I wanted to sort of embarrass you with some personal fact, but there must be some. And I'm sure my children would love to share all of those with you. But no, I think you do tend to keep a bit of a low profile, don't you? I guess Uh, you have to. As you get a bit older. I might have had a few stories in my younger days. Yeah, because you said to me you were brought up in Liverpool. Yes, I was very much so. So I lived there till I was about 18 before I went off to university. And I wasn't brought up in the posh part of Liverpool. So I have very fond memories of that tight community. Mm. And it was a very, very vibrant place. But plenty of nightclubbing, plenty of doing too much, too young. Firstly, you don't sound like a scale set. <laughs> but secondly, um, I think, aren't we lucky that we did our growing up before social media? I mean, you know, if everything I did as a youth was captured and forever on social media, I don't think I'd be the chief executive of the Chamber of Commerce now. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of pressure, isn't there, that comes Huge. with social media. And while there's lots of pluses as well. I mean, how can you just think about how quickly you can access the rest of the world, what's happening, Mm. news, international news, all the stuff I love. I think if you're young and growing up, it can start to intrude you very much about what you should be like, how somebody's breakfast on Instagram is more interesting than yours. You know, and with my kids growing up with it very much, it's been a fascinating insight and not always a positive one. No, I've seen it myself with family members who mm. had, I suppose they put like with issues about their body image, yeah. which they didn't need to have in the sense yeah. that they're beautiful people. And yeah. it was a really difficult time. But thankfully, they're through it. And partly, of course, thanks to the NHS. Now, I've got to say, I noticed that in my research, you were awarded an honorary doctorate of health by the University of Plymouth in 2014. So that makes you a doctor. Do you feel like you want to go down to the operating theatre and help out? Whip out the odd appendix? No, love going down to the operating theatre to watch and see what's happening. That's part of my job I love is just being able to go around the services. It was a very unexpected and great honour to be awarded the honorary doctorate 
from Plymouth University. And what was really lovely is on the day, you're allowed to have a bit of a speech. So I had five or 10 minutes. And I have to say, it was absolutely moving to be able to speak to all the graduate nurses Mm -hmm. that were graduating that day. And one of the things I said, and I absolutely felt from the heart, is that it is the greatest honour and role people can have to go on others' journey when they're not well and Mm. how you support them and it was a lovely day and it's really nice and I was very grateful to the university. I'll bet I'm just plug here I am available for doctorates although I think (laughs) Sir Stuart Elford has a certain ring to it but I'm you know anyone who wants to nominate. (laughs) Was this something you always wanted to do you growing up in Liverpool did you ever see yourself as Dr Anne James CEO of a hospital? Not at all I think in your early days you know it's quite difficult to know what it is that you absolutely want to do you know I went to a comprehensive school I was the first member of my family to go to university so I was in new territory really very much so originally I wanted to be a social worker and then I got a little bit waylaid and ended up doing some other things like working on a watercress farm which was not very rock and roll but it was (laughs) definitely formative to make me think I definitely want to do something that really aligns with the values of originally what I wanted to do is to be a social worker and then I worked in the private sector for a little while that was really good and important experience Mm. but it didn't quite fill this sense of public service for me and I know that sounds a bit grand but you know quite simply growing up in a real working class part of Liverpool I could very much see the impact of inequalities, the fact that, you know, my friends were really able people, but all sorts of life choices, situations meant that perhaps they weren't able to have some choices about what they wanted to do. So I really wanted to work in a way that could help address inequalities, social justice, all of those sorts of things. They are still my abiding drivers. They're the thing that make me want to get out of bed every morning. And then I started on what they call the National Management Training Scheme for the NHS. And you know when you feel like you've found your place? I thought this I'll let is, you know if I find it. <laughs> this is just brilliant because I love organisations and I love organising things and leadership. Mm-hmm. But to do that in an environment that was all about health and care was just perfect. And I've just loved every minute of it since. I get it completely. So I did 17 years in the police service and I left and did various private sector roles. And I was chair of the hospice for seven years and a trustee for 10 And it was when I gave up that, or not gave it up, my tenure was up after 10 years, and I suddenly realised that my day job wasn't filling me with joy. And the thing that was actually giving me some purpose in life was the things I was doing with the hospice. And that's what ultimately led me to think I need to move on and find something else. And with the chamber, I feel like I'm helping business, I'm helping people, and it fills that social purpose, which is really valuable. And it's what most young people want now. They want a job with purpose. They want to feel like they're making a difference, don't they, rather than just going to work and doing 50 years for a carriage clock or whatever the old sort of example was. You're now CEO of a hospital that's probably going through the toughest time the NHS has gone through probably ever, actually. That must be incredibly tough for you and for all your staff. 
Yeah, well, certainly the last year, I think, for everyone has been the most challenging of times. And certainly working in a hospital, I think, if you reflect on the last year, it's been the worst of times when so many people have lost their lives to this pandemic, the pressure in services. But it's also been the best of times as well. And I think it's for the staff there who have just been so professional, used all of their clinical skills and have every day gone above and beyond They've just been amazing and some of the real stories that I've seen, heard in the hospital give you a real sense of absolute pride to be part of it, but a great sense of hope about humanity. And I think the hospital, you know, has done incredible things, but I wouldn't want that to ever be to the exclusion of all the other people who are GPs who work in care homes, community mental health services, you know, that big health and care sector has been immensely resourceful and we've all worked together incredibly well and that's been one of the standout things about being in the city you know these relationships are built up over many years and when you know you've all got to pull together there's not a moment's hesitation everybody just steps forward to do it and that has been just amazing and obviously I get to do work and listen to other stories from around the country there'll be lots of great examples but for me Plymouth and Devon and Cornwall absolutely stand out as being everybody just pulling together just doing the right thing which when you're managing something you haven't done before you don't often have to manage a pandemic no. you know even in NHS careers well, there was no rule book for it really no rule there? book you don't quite know how it's going to work it's not over in 24 hours you know it's been a we very wish. we've been digging very deep well everybody has for mm-hmm. a long time then that's just been the most heartening experience really were you scared for your staff? Because am I right in thinking you've got a daughter who works in A&E? Were well, I've got, yeah, so them? I've got four children and I've got three daughters. So they're all older teenagers and they've got a different surname to me. So they managed to, at the first wave, get themselves in to, <laughs> be, the radar, yeah. to be flexible support workers for the first wave of the pandemic. So one was on an orthopaedic ward, one was supporting intensive care and one worked in A&E. And there were lots of people who stepped forward during that time but for staff your priorities are two things I think when you're facing into a pandemic is one how do you get everybody organized and get your best clinical expertise to make sure that you do your very best for patients who have got COVID but also those patients who still need to come to hospital for their treatments and their operations we know that was hugely disrupted through the pandemic but that's your first priority and right alongside that is how do you support your staff how do you keep them safe because it's an infectious virus. I was going to ask you that. You must be scared for them. You're anxious for them, but Mm. actually you have to get on and get some practical things in place. And so we had a very good system of PPE, unlike perhaps other parts of the country, although we got a bit close to the bottom of our supplies, we Mm. were always able to provide the right level of PPE for our staff. But it's not just protection from the virus. It's then also the psychological support that we've put in place Mm. for staff who 
have also got a lot going on in the rest of their lives, but they're also perhaps needing to work in different areas. They're seeing things at a level that they wouldn't normally experience. And that continues to be our top two priorities, supporting our patients, getting them treated and making sure we support our staff. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because without your staff, you know where are you? Absolutely. You've got a big building with lots of kit in it, but without the staff there. And you talked about other pressures. And forgive me if this is personal, but I understand you lost a close friend during the pandemic. Yeah, and that was not through COVID. And she Mm. was a very dear friend and we'd worked in the health service a long time together and she died in the May with cancer. I was just bereft, Mm. really. It was such a difficult time. And then you really do relate to people because you can't go to the funeral. I couldn't be there to support Mm. in person her children. And that was really, really difficult. But like everybody else, you know, you get great support from those around you. My team were just lovely and kind. Mm. But actually, you know that lots of people are sadly going through the same thing. And so you get up, you come into work and you get on. Mm. But it was really nice to be able to share that with the team. And Mm. people were really supportive, but a really difficult time. Yeah, it must be very very tough and I'm sorry to bring that up if it's upsetting but I just think people should know they forget don't they that managers leaders are also going through difficult times but as a leader you're not allowed to make a mistake or ever show I suppose weakness is the wrong word but to show that you are affected by it too or do you think it's important to actually be authentic and say no I'm with you on this yeah I personally think it's really important to be authentic share your vulnerabilities and actually be a bit humble about these things because even running a big hospital you really hope and you've got lots of people around you that are really are the experts to make sure you're doing the right thing but you've got to be humble enough to know that in hindsight you'd look back and think oh, I should have done some things differently mm. and you've got to be human more than anywhere running a hospital is about being a human being with yeah. all those trials tribulations grief loss mm. hope every aspect of all of our lives have been affected you know when you've got kids as well homeschooling mm. all of that and I think you should just talk about it yeah we had team zoom meetings and When I was having a difficult day and struggling because I was single, living alone, Mm. recently got divorced and found it really tough because I'm a people person. I like meeting people, shaking hands. And I found it tough. I did say to the guys, I'm really struggling today. I'm finding this really difficult. And I think that it's great to have a team that accept that and will talk to you about it and not judge you for it, which is really important. And I think as well, the more people who are seen to be in roles that people think that you know nothing happens to them and that they can always cope Mm -hmm. I think the more we share our vulnerabilities the better because then it can just be something that we talk about Mm -hmm. it's not something that we don't feel we can share Mm -hmm. because actually it doesn't mean to say you're less able to lead or less able to do things but it's just a way of connecting and I think you know what's been really a positive from the pandemic and we've got to take the positives where we can is it's okay not to be okay Mm. and I think supporting people on any aspect of isolation psychological mental health and well-being has got to be something that we're all committed to absolutely and I don't think there's a single person who would disagree and I think it's come to the fore how important that is that we look after our team still to come Trevor Worth from Portcullis Legals. And he said to me, do you remember your wedding anniversary as well as you remember the day you started the business? And I said, well, do you remember yours? And he said, I've got 50 PAs. They remind me. And I thought, yeah, that's about right. 
follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. And how do you look after yourself? It must be an incredibly stressful job. How do you get away from it and relax and try and not think about the hospital 24-7? Well, I can't not think about the hospital 24-7. It gets into your blood a bit. It gets into your soul and you feel really hugely committed to it. Mm. So the truth is, I don't really switch Mm. off. But I'm not doing this on my own. I've got a great team, great board. But you've got to be able to pace yourself a little bit, knowing that they're exceptional circumstances. So I love being and talking to my kids. I love walking my dogs. I like cooking. And I've now probably got to a time of life where I really enjoy gardening and just sort of looking after birds, feeding them, you know, getting real pleasure in the things that were there all the time. But perhaps I've been too busy to see and enjoy. And that sort of sense of mindfulness, I have really, really valued. It must be difficult. I've got a friend who's a senior NHS manager and he tells me that he knows he will not meet his targets. Impossible. He said they're impossible to meet. So he's going into work knowing he's not going to achieve what he's expected to achieve and I would find that demoralising how do you manage that how do you rationalise it how do you get your head around the fact that government sets a target and gives you some money but it may not be enough money or the target may not be achievable how do you deal with that so I think you've always got to try and do your best haven't you to Mm. hit what might feel like impossible things for me personally I sort of broaden my list of what a good day might feel like (laughs) and the targets and the money really really important because they're driven either from safety or from the pledges of the government. It's often about waiting times. So they're in themselves really, really important. But I like to also supplement that with, have we got a really good culture in the hospital? Do we really support staff? Do they have a voice? Are we really responsive to patients? How do we develop excellence? How do we tell really good stories about Mm. what's been going on, not just in the hospital, but across the city? And strategically, if you can't hit all of your targets, What's going on there? Is it because you don't have enough money? Are you not as efficient as you could be? Do you need to develop different relationships? You know, it is the breadth of the role that I really, really love. Mm. And you took the hospital from having quite a difficult time, I think 2018, 2019, didn't you get quite a poor CQC inspection result? That must have been demoralising for you and your team when you're working so hard to try and deliver. Did that personally upset you? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we had two sort of what they call warning notices around some of the performance and culture in two departments within the hospital. And it's really, really upsetting. Mm. It's upsetting because you know that perhaps your staff and patients haven't had the best deal. And it's upsetting because it's on your watch. Mm. And while I'm not the only person involved (laughs) in running the hospital, you know, you do feel that accountability and quite rightly so very, very personally. But you have to recognise it. It's the role of the regulator. I might not have agreed with everything that they've said, but you take that on the chin and then you work with your teams to improve it. Mm. And there isn't a person in the hospital that doesn't want to do things better. Mm. So you're going with the grain. You know, that's the important thing. But when you're running such a big and diverse organisation, when you have people often working under intense and sustained pressure, then making sure the culture is always optimal all Mm. of the time 
It is a bit of a tough call, isn't it? But what I do think, and, you know, our board and chairman very positive about this, is that warts and all, we will share that with the public because it's a public service. So if something's not going so well, we need to be open about that. We need to be very clear about what we're going to do to put it right. But I think that's about authentic leadership. Mm -hmm. That's not about spin. That's about telling it how it is and sorting it out. Speaking of which, how's the hospital going to come out the other side of this pandemic? Because a lot of people have been waiting for routine operations or other treatments because it's not just about COVID, is it? There's a lot of very sick people out there who need operations or treatments. What's the hospital's plan for getting back and clearing the backlog? Because you must be a year behind with some of the services. Yeah, so we've got a real challenge, I think, in terms of clearing that backlog. We already had quite high numbers waiting before we went into the Mm. pandemic. There's probably three things really about recovery. One is about making sure we support our staff. They have been working very intensely supporting COVID patients and making sure those that are at the highest risk are treated. So we've got to help them and support them make that transition. We've then got to use through clinical priority clearing as many treatments operations and we've started that work now and also we need to just be a bit cautious because I know everyone's very positive and optimistic about coming out of the pandemic and Mm. we definitely need that roadmap and that optimism Mm. but actually we're not out of the woods and we will have quite a bumpy ride I think between now and certainly the end of this year so we'll have to be flexible and if we start some services up and operations we may well be in a position where we're having to pull that back a bit Mm. if we get more COVID patients coming through Mm. but the determination to get people treated at the right time as quickly as possible is absolutely there. Yeah good luck and I think people understand I think we've always known that healthcare is important but I think this pandemic has made us realise how important and who the really important people are. We are apolitical as a chamber so I won't go into any current discussions about whether they're paid appropriately but we appreciate it and certainly I think my colleagues in the business community just wanted to do whatever we could. I can remember sending you an email saying what can we do and you just said keep doing what you're doing you know just silly little things we on our little business park because we're at Dereford we offered our car parks we went there offer them to the nhs staff everybody wants to do something to help because if you're not in the nhs it feels like you're helpless you know and there's not much you can do and i suppose the pressure on the nhs it can't carry on as it is i think if you set out today to design a free healthcare service it wouldn't look like the nhs but it's grown and sort of morphed and become quite i don't know if the word is unwieldy but it's certainly a complex organization what do you think is required do we need more private sector delivering nhs services how do you think the nhs is going to change over the coming years? I think it's going to change phenomenally, isn't it, really, if you think about the impact digital can have. I think that's going to be a real transformational trigger about how healthcare is delivered, how you get to see a GP or talk to a clinician. I think we've got a lot of the building blocks in place. There's something called the long-term plan, which is a national plan for the NHS, and that's got locally determined priorities. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a great believer in the NHS, and it's been great that we've been able to work with partners. I think free at the point of delivery is something that I would feel very passionately about as we move forward and we've got to get that balance about how we can through public health and addressing some of the inequalities and lifestyle issues that many people are battling with that we have anticipatory health so we really support our own health and well-being Mm. and then we've got the right partners 
of services there to support people when needed. But it is complex um, and a lot of developments, I think, coming up. Not the sort of decisions I'd like to have to make, but I always think, you know, nowadays one treatment or one machine costs what a hospital used to and who makes the decision to say that is more important than this that must be tough saying well do i treat patient a or patient b or patient c because you can't treat everybody for everything all the time so i think making choices with evidence and good information about outcomes whether that's what we've seen more recently about the prioritization of vaccinations Mm. which is very much about your chances of dying if you catch it which Mm. is age related or you know the quality of life and length of life Mm. that people will have these are all very complex choices Mm. and decisions it's partly about society and where they want to place their priorities but thankfully no one person needs to make these decisions by themselves you know it's very much about what the democratic process is what's important to people Mm. it's very much based on evidence and I like to stay really really focused on what we can do for Plymouth Devon and Cornwall and so you know it's great that we've got the announcements of the new build for Derriford that's not just about a new building that's about making sure that we've got a really great health and care strategy that phrases you know is future proofed so how do you try and transport yourself Mm. 30 or 40 years ahead to make sure that what you might be building really is fit for purpose when we get there i think you've been looking at my questions because i was going to ask johnny mercer when i interviewed him said one of his legacy things he wants the new hospital and so tell us about that how far off is it what are we getting is it a totally new hospital what's happening to the derriford site so we've been working on all the different options that we've got for a new build of derriford and that could be for example building a new hospital on a completely different site the one that we're probably going to go for is keeping it where it is but actually building it in phases but in totality we'll use the Derriford and surrounding site subject to approvals which we haven't Mm. fully got yet that's quite a long process but it is moving (laughs) and the first phase of that will be we call it gateway project is the new build for the urgent and emergency care centre Mm. and that is where the current emergency department is and that will be a very major build which we will probably start all being well towards the end of next year for emergency services and how they come in to the hospital before they go to different wards in the hospital and we've had tremendous national support and local support to keep this on the agenda so I'm feeling increasingly confident that we'll get there. That's going to happen well that's great I sadly have spent way too much of my time in A&E firstly in 17 years in the police you can imagine I spent many many hours in A&E not personally though sometimes as a victim of an assault but mostly just looking after people who have been assaulted or offenders who are in need of treatment and then sadly my mum went through a difficult time with a stroke and heart attacks and she's been through and then I myself had a mini wobble and went through A&E and I again emailed you afterwards and said please thank your team don't have to get back to me because the treatment you get is just exceptional it's just wonderful a good friend of mine put on Facebook recently that he'd had to call an ambulance because of a problem and he was from time of call to time being in the hospital being treated in A&E with a doctor waiting for him as he came in was minutes And I think that says something. That must give you a nice warm feeling that people are giving that sort of feedback. The feedback that we get about all of our services, but often it is from the emergency department, just means so much. And the staff 
love it as well. They mm. really, who doesn't like to know that they've made a real difference and they've really mm. supported somebody? And, you know, I think everyone has been through the hospital one way or another. You know, I had to go through A&E after a fall and managed mm. to smash my face up. But everybody is kind. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. but no, I, that's did, fine. Do you think, oh, no, they're all going to laugh at me? And It's quite an unusual experience, I think, to them. Did you get Rolls-Royce treatment? Did you have the red I'm absolutely now? assured I didn't. But it felt like it. Well, I think they were very responsive. Mm. And I think, as they would with all patients, and mm. I mean, joking aside, mm. they were very aware that a lot of people knew who I was. And so for my own dignity, they sort of managed to park me in the corner, <laughs> which yeah. was really, really kind of yeah. them. But the point is, is when you need hospital services they're there especially in an emergency situation and they are just terrific and that's what we need to remember you know as we're having debates about what the future of the NHS looks like you know I really hope we don't and I'm sure we won't forget how incredible the NHS has been in this last year often just getting on with things. Absolutely so my final question to you what do you want your legacy to be and I'm not suggesting that you're about to leave unless you tell me anything different but what do you want when you go look back and go right I did it I sorted it I was successful or I'm proud of that particular thing I think for my legacy I would really like my colleagues my staff and the people I work with to remember the values I had in leading the hospital and that through those we made a difference I think I'd be really proud of that you should be I mean we're all proud of the NHS but particularly locally of Derriford as we said we don't have to call it anything else it's just Derriford isn't it on behalf of myself but on behalf of the business community thank you to you and to your staff please genuinely pass it on that we really appreciate everything they're doing and keeping business running keeping the economy going but looking after our friends and family and means a lot and we're so glad you're there and thanks for joining us Anne thank you and thanks for all your support as well thank you now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the southwest. Hello there, and welcome back to part two of our Chamber podcast in conversation with. And this is Chambermaid, where we speak to various chamber members about their business. And I'm delighted today to be joined by the CEO and founder of Portcullis Legals, Trevor Worth. Welcome. Thank you, Stuart. I'd written in my notes here that Trevor Worth is the founder and CEO of Portcullis Legals, a market disrupting law firm based here in Plymouth. I don't like the term market disrupting because it kind of indicates that that's what you set out to do. Did you set out to disrupt the market or just to innovate? Neither, to be honest. I think in the early days, it's just a case of trying to build a business and earn a living, really. Right. I think in the last five or six years, because law is changing massively, like lots of business aspects, society in general, we felt that we should go and do something a little bit different because a lot of the offerings from law firms generally are quite stayed or perceived that way by the public. And I thought if we could go out and do some different things in a different way and deliver it with brilliant customer service, then hopefully the business would flourish. And so innovation's part of our mindset, but it was never the goal initially. So talking about innovation, you've introduced a lot of innovative things in your company, like the four-day work week, which sort of got international recognition and acclaim. Has that worked? Are you happy you did it or any regrets? Very happy we did it and we're committed to that long term. So no matter how big or small the company is, or will be in the future. We're committed to that because it's good for the team, their mental well-being, their admin days, as they call it, when they get a four-day week day off. They do all the things that they'd normally do on a weekend. So they come back in on a Monday much more refreshed. And it's been good from an internal perspective, but also how we're perceived from the outside world. 
So although we weren't the first firm to do the four-day week, we were the first to introduce it and increase salaries at the same time because I didn't want the general public thinking, oh, we're making cutbacks or whatever right, it was. So, right. And because of that, we didn't realise that we were the first in the world to do that. So the acclaim from everywhere was incredible. You know, 11 million hits in a year. And on our websites and social media, I mean, you couldn't buy that, could you? That's no. coverage. And lots of potential clients have come to us because they say, if you treat your staff that well, how well do you treat your clients then? So it's been an unintended consequence, really. It's something really positive. I think it was Richard Branson who said, if you look after your staff, they'll look after your clients. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to come back to that. Okay. Because I've seen a photo, oh, which I'm going you? to come back to. <laughs> but I read somewhere that you said that business should be enjoyable and invigorating and that people should want to get up and get motivated every working day. And if they're not, they should cut it out and do something that they feel passionate about. Well, you've been in this business for 32 years, I read, and you've spent a lot of time innovating. So what's next? What's keeping you passionate? Are you plans for world domination? No, we always want to try and be the best we can, but not the biggest. And obviously during this pandemic, we've had to make changes. We've had to make cutbacks. Unfortunately, that's, you know, sometimes staffing issues and, and letting good people go. And that's been one of the low points of the whole journey, really, not just the last year. But we're more about just trying to do things really well as best we can in an innovative way. And if we stay just as a regional firm across the southwest and do a really good job, that's enough for me. What a successor might want to do is something a bit more national or global. Mm. But I think with the advance in technology now, we can reach further afield. Mm. And certainly with Zoom meetings and Teams and those sorts of things, we're getting a bigger client base outside of our immediate area. So that's a good thing. Well, funnily enough, I noticed that you've got a digital strategy officer. Is that a particular direction you're going in? Or is that the future of law, you think, going completely digital? I think so. I think most law firms, when they look at estate planning generally, they see it as a loss leader sometimes, don't they? Because they can't make enough profit from maybe wills or power of attorney and things like that so they go after the commercial law or criminal law there's more profit in those areas we tend to look at it if we can offer a really good service which you know up to now has been face to face but we can embrace the technology and cut out as much of the traveling and all that sort of thing as we can then we can become a more profitable company on the back of that but still delivering a great service and we will embrace that and technology to us And a digital strategy is really important because I think what's happened in the last year is forced firms to obviously reflect and review what's gone on in all sectors, haven't they? Absolutely. And we've looked at it from the point of view as maybe this technology would have been there or accepted by the public in five or 10 years time, possibly. Now it's been concertinaed in. Within 12 months, we're all there and our clients are embracing it. And, you know, we're enjoying it as a team as well. And it's made us super efficient, but it means the digital stuff we have to introduce to work really efficiently with clients like ID checks, things like that. Absolutely. That's all coming on board now and it's going really well. Yeah, I mean, there's pandemic. Nobody would have wished this on anyone, but there are certain aspects of it that it's accelerated use of digital technology. I've been saying for two years to my team, we really should think about how we get our events online. Devon's a big county. We yes. cover the whole of Devon. We want people to be able to come to our events from everywhere. So mm-hmm. let's stream in. Of course, it just was in the too difficult to do box or the we've got other priorities. Suddenly we had to do it. And within a week we went from introducing online meetings to being world experts in Zoom. I didn't even know what Zoom was a no, year ago. Absolutely. And suddenly here we're yeah. the world's experts. There's that old line, isn't it? Necessity is the mother of invention. And that's exactly where we all are. And it's made us 
all really analyse our businesses in far greater detail than probably we did because lots of business owners I talk to, and certainly you probably find it as well, we're all on that hamster wheel, aren't we? Just doing our day-to-day stuff and being yeah. as good as we can. And we've now had this period to look back and look forward at the same time and introduce new ideas, really, and new ways of working. So we'll try and embrace that. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned about the lowest point of your journey about letting good people go, and I get that. I mean, that's just awful. But what have the highs been on your journey? As trite as it sounds, I think still being in business all these years on is a permanent high, you know, especially in the last 12 months. But there's been things like we've taken on a number of apprentices over the years, and they flourished. We've still got one with us who's Mm. gone on to great things. And to see them develop and come in as quite quiet, shy individuals at 16, 17, 18, whatever age they were, and whether they stay with us or go on and have new careers with other firms, that's great. It's just to see them develop as individuals. So that's great. I think as well, random things like when we won the British Wheels and Probate Award, which, you know, we're a small firm down here in Plymouth, very proud of that and to be up against the big boys in London and the rest of the country and then when we got announced as a winner I felt one of our apprentices was with us she should go up and get the award and we followed her up and that for me was a great thing because it shows we're on the right path we may get lots of things wrong along the way but you know you learn from everything don't you and it's been an enjoyable journey and hopefully for a few years yet I think Muhammad Ali said I've never failed I've either succeeded or learned a lesson I think that's the way to look at it isn't it always Um, you can concentrate on your failures but actually if you learn from something not a failure you just got to learn from it and move on and if you've never made a mistake you've never tried anything have you so no that's the other thing one thing i'd say because i still help a lot at universities and in terms of on the entrepreneurship side and innovation those sorts of things and there's always lots of younger people who want to push on and go into business. And the one thing they always ask about is, you know, when's the best time to start? And I always say yesterday. Yesterday, absolutely. The opportunity was there. And it's like they say, when's the best time to plant a tree? Well, 20 years ago or now. Because, absolutely. you know, you just got to get on with it. You, you have. I, I don't yeah. think anyone's truly ready. I heard an entrepreneur speak once about starting a business. is like standing on a cliff, looking over the edge and getting ready to jump. And when you do, you've got to start flapping your arms and hope you learn to fly before you hit the ground. Yes. And, and thankfully, obviously, successful businesses have done that you've pulled out of that curve i looked at your linkedin profile before the interview and your header picture is huskies pulling sleds is there a story behind this there is so my stepdaughter is just qualified as a solicitor and uh, very proud of her for doing that we were on a train coming back from london i was in london on meetings this is 2012 something like that and she'd been at a sort of law summer camp at a big firm in the city and we both coming home at the same time, so we sat on this train. Couldn't get a seat, usual thing. We won't go into Southwest trains and all that. That's another topic. <laughs> and she said to me, the one thing they said to me in my review was, I've got lots of skills and talent, but there's nothing on my CV that would make me stand out. So she said, what would you do if you were starting all over again? So I just randomly said, I'd always fancy doing a Husky track. And she said, oh, that's great. Let's do it together. So I thought, oh, brilliant. We'll go and do it. Well, unfortunately, she had a few issues sort of uh, about a year later. So I had to try and go on my own and haul in a friend and a great friend of mine, Matt Begley, stepped up to the mark. We raised, I think it was just short of 13,000 for, sadly, my niece passed away at six months of age. And I always said, when I got to 50, I'd do something ridiculous to raise money for that charity. And that was it. So we went on this trek on the Tri-Nations border up in Finland, Sweden and Norway. Very challenging, much more challenging than I'd ever thought it would be. We th- well, I thought we'd be going through some nice forests and having fires. In the- no, no, nothing like that. I mean, the first climb was two and a half hours up on a mountainside. And, you know, I was a bit fitter then than I am now, but I thought my heart was going <laughs> to jump out of my chest. But a great achievement. And it's sort of all the highs and lows of that week. You know, again, it's like business. You look back and go... 
Well, we struggled at times, but we got through it and we had our end goal and got there, you know, but uh, great Probably experience. like me, when you look back at adventures, I was lucky enough to drive a 1979 VW Beetle across the Sahara Desert. Oh, and wow. I look back, I can't think of any of the lows. I know there were some lows, because if I really think about it, there were some pretty tedious times, some tough times, some quite scary times. But you look back on the adventure and the highs, don't you? you yes. You remember the highs. And I'd just tell you a silly story. So I got divorced last year and a friend of mine, who's a really good friend, when I told him that we'd split up, sent me a message saying, I'm on my way. And I said, it's all right, Paul, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then I got another message saying, well, come for dinner now. I said, Paul, I'm fine, I really am fine. And it went quiet. I had to almost be rude. Like, Paul, get right. stuff, just leave me alone, I'm fine. And then I got a message and it just said, well, I can't say the word he used, but let's say, flip it, we need an adventure. And then about a minute later, there was another thing came up and it was a picture of a map with a line going down to Morocco. And then about a minute later, a picture of a motorbike. Oh, wow. And I thought, hmm. Well, my wife had always told me there were two things I wasn't allowed, an affair or a motorbike. So she had the affair, so I bought the motorbike. We haven't yet gone to Morocco, but we did no. do France and Spain through the Pyrenees on the motorbikes. I love an adventure. Fantastic. We've got a plan to go to Iceland. We're going to hoik the motorbikes onto a ship and go up there. And we do want to go to the crater in Morocco where they filmed Spectre, just because we can, just because. because it's there, and to have that adventure. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, sorry, I've gone off on my... No, it's great. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation, with, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. So, talking about pictures, I saw, and I alluded to this earlier, a photo of you and Richard Branson. I know, ridiculous, isn't it? Two you uh, know, world entrepreneurs together. Yes, and we looked so similar, you know, me with my potato head and his with his full beard and <laughs> flowing hair. And I won't go into the circumstance how that happened, but it was an amazing sort of thing for me because the day we were invited to go and have a chat with him was the exact day, 30 years to the day, that I'd started the business. It was oh, wow. just coincidental. Right. We knew the date was coming up a few months ahead and I thought oh my god that's the day I started the business 30 years ago so when I got introduced to Richard the people introduced me as this chap's been in business 30 years and the first thing he said to me was you've done well to last 30 days let alone 30 years and uh, we had a nice private chat about things and he said to me do you remember your wedding anniversary as well as you remember the day you started the business and I said, well, do you remember yours? And he said, I've got 50 PAs. They remind me. And, and I thought, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. But, you know, micro businesses are the heart and soul of the economy, aren't they? Yeah. Especially in the Southwest. And that was a great moment. And I got some great advice. And he is an inspiration to people. There's no doubt about it. He's been there and done it. I think he's had a tough year. Was he an inspiration to you? Other characters that inspire you or people yeah. you look up to and go... Yeah, they've sort of helped me on my way some way. Absolutely. I mean, with Richard Branson, it was, you know, we talked about, sadly, when Challenger sort of crashed when it was doing the transatlantic. Yeah. And that was in the 80s. And I remember seeing it on the news and reading about it. We talked. Oh, I'm too young. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <And> talk- <laughs> I lie. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> and talking about those moments. But he said all those low moments in life are the motivators to get up and get moving. And yeah, so Richard, I think that... There's other people sort of probably not so well known, certainly in the UK, but there's certain sort of NFL coaches, for example, because I get a lot of inspiration from how certain sports leaders have transformed their teams. And, you know, there's a great book out called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And it's a guy who ran the San Francisco 49ers in the 80s, turned them from losers to winners and, you know, very successful business. But all the small 
things along the way. It's that 1% all the time, yeah, isn't the it? incremental gains. Exactly. Lots of incremental gains add Absolutely. up. Absolutely. There's never one magic bullet that sorts everything out. No. You, it's just lots of little, little things. There are. It? And Sir Clive Woodward was good at that as well, yes. wasn't he? You know, well, and, that's uh, who I was actually quoting. It wasn't Stuart Elford, unfortunately, no, but no. it was <laughs> Clive Woodward saying it was just incremental gains across yeah. the whole team. And his famous line, was it teacup? Total commitment under pressure. Under pressure. Yeah, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, the famous kick, Johnny Wilkinson, World mm. Cup final, over the bar. People think that was a great kick. It was. He had practiced that kick 20,000 times. And apparently the groundsman at his old ground used to give him a key because they all wanted to go home. And he would practice kicks from every angle on the pitch. And if he couldn't get it, he would keep practicing it and practicing it and practicing it until until it was midnight, until he got it. And so if there wasn't a safer pair of hands in the world to throw that ball to at the moment of that Rugby World Cup final, that was his, you know, because when his boot hit it, there was only one place that was going. And I I really admire that because it wasn't about that moment. Muhammad Ali, I reference a lot because I'm a huge fan of, he said, you win the match before you start. Mm. You've won it in the gym. He was asked, you know, how many sit-ups you do? He said, I don't count until it hurts. So just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing that total repetition and Richard Branson yeah, my favourite quote of his actually is a silly one someone asked him how he became a millionaire and he said I started as a billionaire and I bought an airline <laughs> which is what's happened to most people who've bought yes. airlines very apt in the last 12 months can I tell you a quick story about Sir Clive Woodward we, yeah go on I, I was asked to go to represent Exeter University with a friend of mine Andrew Penfold who's our digital strategy officer actually uh, yeah and we went to the House of Lords. On the name list, it had Sir Clive Woodward. Then it had Trevor Worth. And I thought, that's the only time I'll get that close to you someone. take a photo, yeah. Yeah, so we're in there. And Sir Clive walks in, and there's about 200 people there. And I said to Andy, you know, we got to go and have a chat with him, you know, because he's an inspirational guy. And I've heard he's very grounded and down to earth. And so we made our way through the throat. And we had a 10-minute conversation with him, full on. It was lovely. It was really nice. And then, obviously, other people want to talk to him, of course, you know. So they're all chatting away. And they had to go off to dinner. And... As he was leaving, he had gone through the crowd. He actually stopped at the steps and he walked all the way back through the crowd to come back and he shook mine and Andy's hand and said, really nice to chat to you guys. I really appreciated that. And and I thought, that's the mark of a class act, isn't it? Of a sir. Yeah. And you've been uh, to the house. You know, I think Sir Trevor Worth's got a certain ring to it. No, probably not. No. No, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't done enough yet, but there's plenty of time. Well, speaking of the, the peerage, actually, allegedly he was nominated for this sadly before he died but you were a friend of Steve Whiteway our friend and chamber director who sadly passed away last year you knew him quite well didn't you I did I think with Steve he's one of those people that you don't come across very often in life who genuinely just had a lot of goodness about him and would always try and help anyone along the way and I remember the first time I met him and he talked about the kindness in life about giving people a hand up rather than a hand out and you see it used everywhere on charity things now but I thought the first time I heard it was with Steve and I just saw a really good soul and as I've said before uh, an angel of a man really because he was kind and genuine and so so sad to lose someone like that and you know firstly for his family but for us in Plymouth as well because he was a great ambassador for all of us. He was a legend. I mean who ever had a train named after them? I know. All the things he'd done was was incredible and I'd written down actually he gave you a leg up that was his way he was more about helping everyone else up the ladder wasn't he? Yeah. And I think he was very good at the connecting thing, which, of course, what the Chamber's good about. Our strapline, connect, grow, succeed. He was the archetypal connector. Yes, he was. And he yeah. is sorely missed. And I think we'll only feel that impact once we all get back to that normality, whatever that is now, where we are in networking groups or whatever it is, and he's not there. And I'll Do you miss... know, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. It'll be a yeah. function somewhere, a dinner, and you'll suddenly think, where's Steve? Where's Steve? Yeah. yeah. He was the oh. only person I always see, and we'd always have a big hug, you know? It was yeah. one of those things, and... 
Yeah, I think he was a good guy for including people that maybe have been on the outside a little bit, and he would yeah. bring them in, wouldn't he? Yeah. Fantastic man, and sorely missed. Well, I'll give you a hug, Jeremy. Oh, not now, because we're not, not allowed. allowed. You know, my chairman, Richard Stevens, said to us, very first lockdown, you know, a week or so in, he said, mm-hmm. God, when this is over, be prepared for long, awkward hugs. I yes. think, well, like, we're nearly a year now. They're going to be much longer and a lot more awkward, because, you know, we just crave that human interaction. We do. We? We're gregarious by nature, aren't we, humans? And we like eye contact, shaking hands, hugs, you know. And also, when you're with someone, you pick up nuances from them, don't Mm. you? The way they react to things. And yeah, we all miss that. Thank you for being part of the Chamber family and for joining me on my podcast. It's been an absolute delight. And I wish you every success with Portcullis. And I hope we'll continue to have you as part of the Chamber family for many years to come. Thank you, Stuart. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Trevor. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.